Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Most of us are familiar, at least to some degree, with the term boundaries. It's a construct from the family systems literature, which we've been covering recently on Love and Life, specifically in episode 108 with Mary Beth Somich. We talked about enmeshment. And enmeshment essentially occurs within families when boundaries are lacking and family members don't have a clear delineation between one another. This is a topic we'll continue to address because it's really important that we understand our family of origin because that's where we learned the relationship dynamics that we carry with us into our adult relationships with friends, coworkers, and yes, romantic relationships. So delving in depth into boundaries, what they are, how we can establish them so that we can have the most healthy relationships possible, relationships that honor and respect who we are as individuals, and then come together in ways that are mutually beneficial. I've been wanting to cover this topic for quite a while, so I was really excited when Dr. Jamie Zuckerman agreed to join me on the program to talk about exactly how we do this boundary work, because it's easy to talk about, but hard to implement. And Dr. Zuckerman and I will talk about this, how it's hard, but yet doable, and why it's important, why it matters, why it will help you level up your relationships with your family members, with friends, and absolutely will help you cultivate true intimacy with a partner who cherishes you and respects and honors your boundaries. Here's a little bit more about Dr. Zuckerman. Following her undergraduate work at The Ohio State University, Dr. Zuckerman attended LaSalle University to obtain her doctorate in clinical psychology, where she graduated with an award for most distinguished graduate student in her cohort. Dr. Zuckerman did her clinical training at several well-known hospitals, including Temple University, Friends Hospital, and the University of Pennsylvania's prestigious Center for Cognitive Therapy. She completed both her pre-doctoral and post-doctoral training at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens, New York. In 2009, Dr. Zuckerman accepted a position as Director of Psychology at the Center for Neuroscience at Riddle Memorial Hospital, where she remained for several years until deciding to enter private practice full-time. She specializes in treatment of adult anxiety and mood disorders. In addition, she focuses on psychological symptoms associated with medical illnesses. She frequently contributes on mental health topics to several online publications, local news, radio, and various podcasts. My conversation on boundaries with Dr. Zuckerman, right after this. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram, where I post original quotes, infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my Love Smarter, Not Harder IGTVs. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. Dr. Zuckerman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. 
This is such a great topic. It's actually a perfect next step to a topic that I've just started to delve into with my community, which it's kind of weird that it took me so long because it's actually the topic of my dissertation, looking at family dynamics and the permission within families to carve out your own identity or are the expectations that you should be super, super close, which we call enmeshment, which really leads to the topic we're going to discuss today about boundaries. And it's such a buzzword in the psych community. We know we need to establish boundaries, but I think sometimes we really need to start at the beginning. What are we talking about when we're talking about an emotional boundary? The most important thing, and this is what I tell my patients initially when we do boundary work, is that a boundary is solely for the person who's setting it. And it's important to keep that in mind because we will tend to feel like we don't have as much control if we're expecting a certain reaction or a certain emotion from somebody else. So from the very beginning, I say boundaries solely are for the person setting them and that's it. So this way it gives the person more control over what they're doing. That's so important because I know you get these questions. I get them too. And it'll be something along the lines of, I feel like I need to set a boundary. How do I do it Mm -hmm. without feeling guilty? Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You don't. (laughs) Yes, you don't. Right. Exactly. That's one of those cases where I say, you you don't, you set it. And at the same exact time, you feel guilty because really what eventually you hope will happen is that the the longer you maintain that boundary for, the more it's reinforced, the less guilt you're going to feel. Right. You kind of have to fake it till you make it with mm-hmm. some of this stuff, right? Yep. Yes. And with your patients and those that you work with in your community, do you see, because again, I, I think so much of this goes back to our family of origin. And because we are raised in a certain family, and those are the norms that we just internalize, oftentimes we don't realize the connection. We have relationships with romantic partners and with friends and with coworkers, and we don't realize that some of those same dynamics that we internalize from our family of origin are in fact playing out in real time with our adult relationships. Yes, that's probably, I would say that's pretty much the foundation of what the work that we probably do with boundaries, uh, because the reason why we need boundaries more often than not is because the patterns, like you said, that we are accustomed to from growing up and the relationships and the dynamics that we're used to play out in our relationships as adults. And while it may have worked then, if you don't tailor your boundaries to different types of relationships as your relationships change over the years, that's when people start to kind of hit roadblocks because what used to work for you as a boundary is no longer working for you because the context is different. So I work with people on identifying the use of old patterns and old boundaries and tweaking them to fit their current relationship. And I think that's such important work because as we were saying, these norms. We just assume that that's the way every family is. Mm -hmm. We assume that that's how the world works. We don't realize so often that we have choices, which you were speaking to earlier about, I can choose to establish a boundary and it's for me. I don't have to worry about the other person. Of course, as kind, caring people, we do, Mm -hmm. but we have to do that work knowing that, and this is the piece that maybe we can get some buy-in from people if they realize that actually when I set a boundary for me, it really does benefit everyone in my life. 
Now, at first it feels selfish, right? It feels like I'm mean even, and the guilt will probably be there as you spoke to, but really everyone benefits if they know where Karen starts and where Karen ends. And so help us understand that a little bit. So as human beings in general, we, we don't like uncertainty. So when you have a family system or any type of dynamic, even if it's just two people, everybody has their role in a relationship. So when one person starts to shift in a dynamic, it throws the equilibrium off of, of everybody within it. Everyone's role starts to shift. And because we start to feel a little weird and we're not sure why, if Karen is setting a boundary, People in that dynamic aren't necessarily going to say, I know why I feel uncomfortable or anxious because Karen's setting a boundary. No one really realizes that. You just don't like what's going on. And they'll do it by saying things like, you're different. Something's not right with you. You're being selfish. And so they're going to kind of swing back to how they were initially. So it's very common for people to set these boundaries and kind of swing back and forth for a while until they become a little bit more confident in setting them. Yeah. I love that imagery that you're providing. There's this dance, so to speak, within a family or with any relationship, there's a dance. Everyone knows their role, their moves, their dance steps. And Mm -hmm. when you do a dance step that's Mm -hmm. different, it throws off as you spoke to the equilibrium and people resist it. We resist change. We want certainty, as you said. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is that so often we don't realize, but we're resisting one another's growth. That's right. Be- because we want to go with what is consistent and comfortable and what has been the norm. And especially when I think about a lot of my community are single women and Actually, I had a question recently. Someone asked, how do you establish boundaries when you're a single woman? Because what happens oftentimes, as we hit these developmental steps in our life's trajectory, we get married, check. We have some kids. Now I have other responsibilities that are sanctioned, right? People understand that to be a good wife, my husband has to come first. That's a natural and very defined change in in our dance steps as, as far as relating to one another in the family. But if you don't have that very socially sanctioned and approved change of your role in life, then oftentimes people can expect you. You might be a 35-year-old single woman, and they expect you to behave as if you're a 15-year-old single teenager (laughs) and not allowing you to have your own space, your own differentiation. And that can be harder, I think, sometimes when you don't have the husband, the kids, those kinds of natural ways of giving that space to create those boundaries. When that happens, what you were talking about, it becomes a very dichotomous or all or nothing way to look at somebody's role as, you know, either you're married at 35 and you have these kids and you have the husband or you're not, which means you're doing something wrong, which means you're not fully, you know, you're not meeting your development, developmental milestones. So when people tend to look at you like that. It's this really all or nothing thing. And it becomes our responsibility to carve out how we want to be and what we're going to tolerate. And that's where the boundaries come in. And it's going to be very uncomfortable for other people who see things in that all or nothing manner, because they have to, as you said, if they're used to you going left and they go right, and all of a sudden you're going (laughs) right, we throw them off. And (laughs) Whether they fall or they don't is up to them, but it's important for the other person to maintain that boundary consistently. 
Yeah. And what sort of messages do you help to reinforce when you have a client who they're saying, okay, I am going to establish a boundary. I'm going to do it Mm -hmm. to help them kind of sit with the very uncomfortable feelings that will result. Sure. So the first thing I do is I, I have them draw out kind of their, if it's a family, their family or whoever's in the dynamic that we're talking about. And I have them give everybody a role first and I have them kind of draw arrows everywhere. So it's this big, messy artwork. Mm -hmm. And I tell them to create in a perfect world and I have them do it in behavioral terms, what the boundaries are that they would want to set. And I have them start with the easiest. And this way, the the emotions that you're talking about that come up are easier for them to tolerate because they're not the boundaries that are the harder ones. So it's kind of like I expose them in a way to mm-hmm. boundaries as we kind of work our way up and they get comfortable with that. But some of the strategies that I'll use for that, um, I use a lot of mindfulness techniques. I use a lot of strategies to get them used to sitting with discomfort and at the same exact time, still setting a boundary and maintaining it. And to know that it will feel uncomfortable. That doesn't mean that something's wrong and it doesn't mean they're doing it wrong. And in fact, if they feel that discomfort, it usually means they're doing something correct because it's different. That's so good. Yeah. (laughs) To try to reframe the the uncomfortable emotions uh, as an indication that you are doing the right thing so that at least in the midst of that discomfort, you can go, okay, the positive piece here is that I must be doing it. Exactly. I'm on the right track here. Yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I have an example I want to share because Mm -hmm. I know that sometimes when we're talking and you and I can go about all this stuff theoretically, but to bring an example that's concrete, I think sometimes can be useful. And it was it was very much my own process of my own differentiation. I was in my late 20s starting my doctorate and my roommate was working on her master's in social work. And we decided that after a, a long semester, we wanted to go to Italy for Christmas And I knew that this was going to be a thing, though, because I had never, ever not been home for Christmas, like Mm -hmm. many people, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And this is not, and it has never been established, you know, family rules we talk about in family systems theory. We talk about family rules. It's not that anyone had ever said no one can ever go anywhere else for Christmas. It had never been articulated, but I'd never tested that Mm -hmm. (laughs) either. You know, and so one of the things that helped me was kind of like what you're talking about. What is my responsibility? And I realized that it would help me establish this boundary to do a couple of things. One, recognize internally, it's not my responsibility to make every family member's Christmas perfect. It's not. It's not my job. If I'm home for Christmas, I hope to be pleasant. I hope to have some tidings of good cheer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's not my job to run around to every family member. How's your Christmas? Is everything okay? What can I do to make it better? Right? It's just not my job. And I had every right as a 28-year-old woman to say, hey, my friend and I want to go visit Italy at Christmas. That would be a really Mm -hmm. wonderful experience. And realizing that it's not my responsibility to then manage anyone's disappointment with my decision. Like all of these are are small boundaries that add up to the ability then to, like we've been talking about, sit with something, knowing people are going to be disappointed. And that's not easy for, especially those of us in the helping profession, right? right. We're sensitive, we're people, people, but realizing actually this is growth for everyone to realize that we can still love each other without having these fixed and definitive mandates for how we behave. That everyone, I can demonstrate to my entire family, I love love you. And we can all tolerate one Christmas where I'm not home and it doesn't have to destroy the relationship. 
That's right. And I think that's, I think a lot of times those unspoken rules, I think a lot of people, they don't even know what their rules are because as you said, they've never tested them. Yeah. And a lot of times they haven't tested them because they're not even aware that that's an option. And when people realize that they have options, like you going to Italy, it may never have crossed your minds before to do this over Christmas just because it didn't. And when you realize that you have an option of how to set a boundary or how to handle a situation, it automatically is going to reduce anxiety a little bit because now you don't feel stuck. Even if you don't take the options, right? at least you know you have them and, and that they're there. The other thing is that with the growth, I like thinking that it helps everybody in the system grow. It's when there's the difficult personalities that you have to deal with where other people's growth may not be their biggest concern, or they may not even acknowledge that that's a thing. <laughs> so, so I deal with that actually a lot, kind of the, the people that block this change. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. And, mm-hmm. and it's, again, I use that kind of for myself mm-hmm. as a way of saying this, just to remind myself to, to be able to sit with the guilt, yep. to be able to sit with the discomfort and go, you know what? This is not me being a meanie <laughs> or being That's a right. Scrooge. Like I'm not That's coming right. home for Christmas. Like I, and even when I presented it to my family, I said, I know this is going to be disappointing and, and I'll be disappointed too. Because it's not that I really want to be away at Christmas. It's just, that's the only time we have because we're in grad school. And right. So it was this understanding that it's not that I'm out here actively trying to destroy Christmas. I just know that I'm 28 and I have this opportunity to go to Italy, which is really exciting. And I want Mm -hmm. to do that. It doesn't mean that my heart won't also be a little sad that I'm not home for Christmas to sit with the tension of many complex emotions and then going, that's all okay. And then to remind myself that actually, if anything, I'm helping my family grow. But then again, that's not my responsibility, whether they receive that as an opportunity to grow or not. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us more about how we can handle this. In Mm -hmm. my case, I was really super blessed because my parents were like, that is disappointing, Mm -hmm. but you will be missed, but we'll, we'll open up presents when you get home, you know, when you're yeah. able to come home. Like, And I guess one other piece to this story, it was really important that I set the tone in establishing the boundary. It was really important for me to say it with warmth, but not ask for the boundary. It was Correct. established. It was stated. It was, it was like, I, I'm sorry. I'm sure you'll be disappointed. I'm disappointed. However, this is what I'm doing. It's not is it okay if I mm-hmm. do this? Mm-hmm. So speak to that, setting the tone. But then even when we set the tone with the maturity and with certainty, we very often, when we establish a boundary, will receive a lot of pushback. And how do we how do we deal with that if someone is pretty adamant about not receiving this boundary? I tell people when they're going to set a boundary to expect to feel bad. This way, when that pang of, you know, pit in your stomach or whatever it is hits you or the anxiety hits you, it's not a shock. And when you walk into it expecting to feel anxious, it takes a little bit of the edge off. And if you walk into it knowing that chances are it's probably not going to be well received, you can kind of have a couple Um, I like to call them blueprints of how to handle the situation. So before I would tell somebody to to kind of practice this and go into their their family and and apply this boundary, we go over possible, not necessarily scenarios, but things that they could say 
in certain situations that would continue to reinforce their boundary. Like you said, the tone that they set, not asking permission, you know, explaining that they too feel uncomfortable about this and that this is hard for them as well. And I always like to throw in at the end, I'm sure you can understand because what mm-hmm. that does is it, it, it it's like if, if, if you said to your parents, I, I'm so disappointed. I'm not going to be at Christmas with you. I, I know you're disappointed too. It's just the only time I can go. I'm sure you can understand. It would sound really odd if your parents said, no, we don't, we don't understand. <laughs> right. Right. So I have people kind of throw that in also because that also creates a little bit of a boundary because it, it's kind of like you're putting it out there that you've already thought this through. And this mm-hmm. is what you're doing. I'm sure you can understand is kind of a delicate way of saying, this is what I'm doing, whether you like it or not. I love that. I think that's brilliant. I think it's it's it does exactly what you want it to do. Mm-hmm. It's still warm and loving mm-hmm. and yet very certain and, and definitive as well. The blueprint business too, I love. I've not even thought about this with boundaries per se, but whenever I've had a, a really kind of a momentous conversation where I know I need to explain something, whether it's been in a romantic relationship or with my parents or with anyone, I always do that kind of thing that you just spoke to. I kind of imagine what are the possible scenarios, uh, possible Mm -hmm. outcomes, like kind of Mm -hmm. the best case scenario, kind of what I really expect will happen and then what, how it could really go south and then kind of prepare myself emotionally. How will I handle each of these possible outcomes. Cause then, like you said, then you don't feel like you're going in blind. You know that there's going to be nerves and anxiety, but you've already taken the edge off a little bit because you've just mentally and emotionally prepared yourself. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, there's two things. One, the reason why I have people almost in an exposure fashion do their boundaries is because I want to make sure that they don't do one of two things, white knuckle through it or disconnected from how they're feeling. So I want them to sit with their discomfort. Otherwise, they're avoiding it. And the chance of them setting the boundary again drops dramatically. So there's that aspect of it. And the other aspect of it, that when you have, let's say, somebody who's difficult in a family dynamic, and you know that when you set this boundary, it's not going to go super well, and you don't think for whatever reason that you are going to main, be able to maintain it. And in just talking about it is making you panic. And maybe it's too extreme of a boundary for right now. So I tell people, if you can't set it completely and maintain it, don't set it at all. Because then what happens is you almost lose credibility and you end up getting that intermittent reinforcement where it ends up making the behavior you don't want to happen happen even more. So if they can't set it or they feel too uncomfortable for right now, we start with something smaller. That's so important because it's one of those things, if you say you're going to do it Mm -hmm. and then they realize that the pressure and the guilt is going to work and they'll get their way anyway, then absolutely you've lost credibility. You've kind of taken a step backwards in your own personal growth and development within the context of this Mm -hmm. relationship or the family or whatever context we're talking about. And yeah, and then <laughs> they're going to go, uh-huh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Next time you decide you're exactly. going to establish a boat. Yeah. Right. Such a good point. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns, will target limiting beliefs and thought patterns, 
We'll learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood. We'll identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals and we'll together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. Let's talk a little bit about boundary setting, in particular, with a relationship that you absolutely cannot leave. I mean, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people in my community on the dating scene, for example, they talk about boundaries within romantic relationships. But obviously, if someone is so toxic, they know they just need to leave, that that's really the the ultimate boundary must be set and they must extricate themselves from the Mm -hmm. dysfunction. But what about if we're talking about an in-law relationship or a boss, or someone that we really just can't escape. Mm-hmm. And yet their negativity, their toxicity is really trying to rain down on us and infiltrate us and our psyche and our emotions and, and so forth. So I think the first thing is to acknowledge that it will be exhausting and draining. That this yeah. process of handling somebody that you can't get rid of is not an easy one by any means. And so just to accept the fact that it's going to be hard work, it's doable but it's going to be hard work. And when people have, let's say, a toxic dynamic with their boss or their in-laws or, or, or a sibling, unless one person shifts, it's going to continue exactly as it is. And you may not be the toxic one. And usually that's the person that ends up in our office saying, why am I the one in here? It's, you know, everybody else is doing right. X, Y, and Z. And it's because they may not have the insight, but the person in your office does. And mm-hmm. so I, I bring that up as a strength for them, that the fact that they're even acknowledging this, it puts them already 10 steps ahead because they have the insight. So that means they have the ability to change it. And so sometimes just hearing that and knowing they have control over that makes it a little bit easier. I also will work with people on kind of like we talked about coming up with the the blueprints. So let's say we know that on Thanksgiving, X, Y, and Z always happens. So if we know that, and we know that kind of the pattern of events, how can we shift it a little bit so that we walk away feeling neutral? Doesn't matter how the other people walk away, but how do we walk away feeling a sense of, of neutrality, not peacefulness necessarily, not anger, but just neutral. Because when you're neutral, you give the other person nothing to hang their hat on. And you'll never win. And we know this from working with people, you'll never win at somebody else's toxic game. You're constantly going to be chasing them up, down, up, down, up, down. But if you present to them consistent and neutral, they're going to run themselves ragged until they're exhausted. And you get to walk away with more emotional energy, more of a neutral stance, and to be able to put that energy towards other things you enjoy. It's so true. I've heard it put this way, that we can't win with the toxic folks because they'll go for the jugular every time. Yes. And they change the rules and they don't (laughs) tell you when they're changing the rules. (laughs) Right. They'll hit below the belt, whereas we will not. Like The bad people will always win if your metric is who's going to walk away feeling triumphant. And so they're going to feel triumphant, even though we know it's some sick, twisted game that they're Mm -hmm. playing that they in their head have won. But we have to, like you said, have that sense of neutrality so that we are the one who's going, I'm not going to give you ammunition. And that's a very powerful thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, it is. And and yeah. I think there's so much mindset work, which I know I love that you talk about the mindfulness piece mm-hmm. because you can only change your dance step. Mm-hmm. You can't control how they respond to you changing your dance step. Mm-hmm. We can hope that the boundary will be respected. We can hope that it, it will change enough that, like you said, they'll run themselves ragged mm-hmm. with their own toxicity and we can extricate ourselves. But ultimately we can't guarantee that. But what we can do is change how we, we can know that we've advocated for ourselves. We have empowered ourselves, and then allow that to bolster ourselves in those moments when, again, that toxicity comes spewing over. Mm-hmm. And also what happens a lot of times, especially in toxic family dynamics, when one person sets a boundary with a toxic person and that toxic person realizes that they're getting nothing to use, yeah, they'll go to somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Again, that's another way how the dynamic shifts. So let's say, you know, they're, they're attacking you, but you're not giving anything back and then they go to your spouse. Mm -hmm. So it's a large, kind of a larger picture, but it's really up to you to set them for yourself. What the other people do around you and how they respond is completely out of your control. Yeah. And then you're going to feel guilty though, because you dodged the bullet. Now the bullet's going to hit you. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and also the guilt that people, usually when people do boundary work, it's the people that are going to have guilt because they have the awareness and they, they understand that things aren't working the way they want them to. They want everyone to be happy. They want everyone to just get along. So there is a lot of guilt with that. One of the things I do with guilt, because it's a, it's more of a secondary emotion. I have people separate the label from the actual physical sensation. Because then what over time, what they realize is that it's just that your stomach feels a little weird, right? Or you're breathing shallow. The label that you slap on it is what gives it meaning. So I have people in the moment focus on how their body feels physically rather than focus on the word guilt. Oh, I love that. It just separates it because the truth is how you feel when you're guilty, the, the anxiety, the pit in your stomach is no different than the physical sensations you'd have if you walked into a surprise party for yourself. I love, love, love that. It's a bit of defusing from yes. the emotion, which exactly. is very act, you know? Yes, exactly. And I've heard it put this way. And as someone who was raised to be the good little girl, I never quite got this, but I want to explore it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The idea that guilt is really a wasted emotion. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, well, wait a minute, doesn't guilt inform me that I did something wrong? But yes, Mm -hmm. maybe, but so often the guilt that we are feeling is misplaced. It really is. Like someone else should feel guilty for being toxic that I had to send a boundary in the first place. That's right. They should be feeling guilty, not me. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's it's usually a, an emotion that is given to you via some sort of manipulative strategy. Not all the time, but it could be something as simple as, you know, let's say instead of your parents saying to you, we understand we're disappointed, but have fun in Italy. They said to you, all right, well, I guess do whatever you want. Right. You know what I mean? So it's usually delivered some sort of subtle manipulative way. And guilt is used by many toxic people to manipulate people into doing what they want, especially people pleasers. So we have to be very mindful of when we feel that feeling, what the function of it is in the moment. It, am I feeling this because this person's trying to get X, Y, and Z from me? Am I feeling this just because this is what I always feel? And then focus on the physical sensation, your stomach. And I have people sit with 
the guilt that they feel for, let's say, a minute or two. And then what I do is I have them give that feeling a color, a shape, a size. You know, they look at me initially like I'm crazy. But mm-hmm. once they go through, I give them seven things to describe it so that when they're in the situation, instead of sitting in their head, in their emotions, saying, I'm guilty, I feel horrible, I'm a terrible person, you say, there's that blue big triangle again. And so it, it takes that feeling and it makes it objective. It gives them almost something tangible to, to put it on. Yeah. And that's such powerful work. It really is. And I'm thinking about how, and I'm sure you've seen this, when you talked about someone who has just created so many relationships in their life, this toxic person who gets what they want from others through manipulation. When you start doing your work, I'm thinking about your clients and your patients, when they start doing their work and they're they're growing and they're getting that distance, they're differentiating, they are creating these boundaries, establishing them, sticking to them. Eventually, you know, the saddest thing really is that that person who used to manipulate them and make them feel so guilty, eventually you pity that person because that's Mm -hmm. such a pathetic way to live, to to get people that you claim to love, you fiercely claim to love these people Mm -hmm. and you manipulate them into doing your bidding at all times. That is such a ridiculous phony way of relating to anyone and how sad because Mm -hmm. the fear in that toxic person is that if they didn't manipulate, no one would be around them. No one would choose to actually be in relationship with them. That's right. And it's not something they'll ever necessarily understand, which is what I have to remind my clients that the goal of this is not to get the other person to understand anything. That won't happen unless they want to do the work. So once the person realizes, again, I always use the word blueprint, the blueprint of another person's behavior, you can't unsee it. And then what happens is you start, it's like, where's Waldo? You start to see it all over the place and you start to see the patterns. And then it just becomes so much easier because now not only are you setting boundaries, but now you're able to predict their behavior because you figured out the pattern. And once you can predict their behavior, it becomes very easy to start to set stronger boundaries because you know they can't they can't hurt you anymore. Right. And I'm thinking about though a piece of alienation that could occur because yeah. once that person through their own growth and development and they are getting healthier and healthier and emotionally stronger they will essentially then outgrow their family in many cases if, if yes. the rest of the family is still stuck in this toxic enmeshment. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do? And how, how do you encourage them as they feel, like you said, they have the insight, they yeah. had the strength to get to therapy. And now all of this growth has, sadly, I mean, the, the sad part, which it's really not sad because it was toxic anyway, but they're still going to miss their family to a degree. That's and right. there's going to be a level they can't really relate to their family anymore. So I I tell people from the very beginning that this is going to change relationships. I especially tell it to people who are coming in because they want to do more kind of pattern growth work. And I know, and I just know it and I don't say it, but I know that the person that they're with, let's say that they've been dating for four years, five years, 10 years, this is going to drastically affect that relationship. And so I let them know ahead of time that this is going to shift your relationships across the board. And sometimes there's a grieving process that takes place when that happens and that's okay. And there's also nothing wrong with feeling 
sad that you're that you now see your family in this way or you see your partner in this way and you still love them it it can be very confusing so i let people know you absolutely will walk out of here at the end with more than one emotion towards your family it, it will not be just one emotion you're going to feel sadness you're going to feel pity you're going to feel anger you're going to feel grief and all of that is okay and in fact it's necessary there's no way to not feel those um and it's healthy it is and it's healthy and it's such a cliche but growth is painful and yep. and growth is always worth it but growth also entails grief as you yep. pointed out it mm-hmm. really does and there's that grief of what used to be comfortable and you kind of miss it in a way but you yep. also know that it's so much better to have that empowerment and then you hope that at least a couple people come That's along right. for the ride and usually that does happen usually it does have an impact on a couple people not necessarily everybody but it it definitely does have an impact on a couple people and and the goal is that that becomes the majority not the minority and so that's kind of what we what we aim for once the person has a good sense of control over their own stuff and their own boundaries and their own emotions that they're having but there's definitely a period of of loss and there's definitely i find this sometimes more so with women that they then look at their inability to see these things beforehand and then they beat themselves up over it yeah I can't believe I never saw this. I can't believe I stayed with him for this long. I can't believe I let him do this to me. I can't believe I let this one do it. So you you can't use the brain you have now to explain, you know, or the insight you have now to explain the insight you didn't have. So there's a lot of that work to guilt about that. There's a lot of guilt. Yeah, it's so true. I remember a professor in grad school said, you made the choices with the information that you had available at that time. Correct. you Right. And you can't beat yourself up for not knowing what you didn't know. That's right. It was very, obviously I've remembered it years later and it was, mm-hmm. it's always been a very, a way of, to give myself a little grace because, and I'm sure the women in your community and the men as well, when you are about personal growth and development, you can be kind of hard on yourself sometimes yeah. when you look back and you go, oh my, but you you know, you made those choices. You made the best decision you could at the time with the information available to you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I, the fact that you're doing this hard work now, why wouldn't you have done the hardest work you could have then? doesn't make sense that you wouldn't have. I love that. It's a, it's a beautiful reframe as well. And it's true. It's, it's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. What do you do? You mentioned couples. So when we have someone who is married and they're going to do some of this work, and yeah. I remember when I started my master's, so my master's is in clinical psych and then my doctor's in developmental. So my master's was all the therapy training, obviously. And I remember our, our program was very intense and it was like, I think most of them are, but it was also mm-hmm. very therapeutic on our end. We were expected, obviously, as clinicians and I'm sure you would concur that we can't take anyone, any client on their emotional growth and development. We can't take them any farther than we've been willing to go ourselves. That's right. So we were meant to be one part grad student and one part client getting mm-hmm. our own therapy, essentially. And I remember, <laughs> I wasn't married at the time, but my some of my classmates, one of the professors said at the, at, during orientation, they said, you know, go home and tell your spouse that you will be different in two years. 
I think I was the only one not married now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) I was the the only one not married still. (laughs) (laughs) I I was one of the only ones too, right? And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that's kind of a big ask (laughs) for Mm -hmm. you to go. and Because someone's going, wait, I said vows to this person. And you're telling me that in two years, this person's going to be different. How do we deal with that when we're in a relationship where we want to maintain the relationship, but yet we also want to continue our growth and continue establishing boundaries? So I I don't do couples work. And when this starts to happen, I usually refer for couples therapy specifically for exactly what you said, that when somebody starts to shift, one of two things happens, either their their significant other will grow with them and they'll go to therapy together and they'll move forward together in this new dance because they'll, they'll see as exactly like you were saying that this is better for the relationship in general, because it promotes not only their, their significant other's growth, but it promotes the growth of the relationship because it's healthy. And maybe they've been stuck for a long time and one person sees it before the other. So they do the work first and then they can kind of help the other person and guide them. And, and that's best case scenario. And, and that fortunately happens very often. So when it, when it doesn't work is when somebody usually is in some sort of toxic relationship that looks very similar to all the other relationships in their life. And it's kind of this overarching pattern that they apply to every single relationship. So let's say they come in because they're stressed at work and we go through their relationship with their boss and their superiors. And then we kind of get into, well, it, it sounds like authority figures and when they, you feel that you're doing too much and it's, you know, you're, you're getting taken advantage of. And then they start to realize, Oh, I also feel like I do this with this person. And then before you know what you're talking about their relationship with their significant other, and they start to realize, let's say, for example, that in a toxic relationship that they've been living, putting their needs second, if putting them anywhere at all. And they start to realize that they're going to start to put their needs first. They go home, they start to put their needs first with someone they've been with for 10 years who doesn't even acknowledge they have needs. That's going to start some problems. So I, I tell them ahead of time when I know it's a toxic relationship, you know, I jokingly say, I think your spouse is probably going to hate me, you know, I kind of make a joke out of <laughs> right. it. And, you know, the husbands hate me, you know, that kind of thing. But, <laughs> but in reality, what, what they start to see is it's not the type of relationship they want anymore and that that's okay and that it's okay for the relationship to end at one point it worked for you you've evolved past that now it doesn't work for you anymore and you can stay in it but you will never be able to be the person that that you want to be if you want to make the relationship work you still need to put your needs second so those are again it's still a choice and i make it very clear you still have an option you can stay and continue to put your needs second. That's a choice and that's okay. Or you can gravitate towards people who are willing to also acknowledge that your needs should come first for you. And sometimes people have a really difficult time getting out and some people realize it pretty quickly and the relationship starts to to fall apart. Yeah, it's one of the reasons that I try to encourage my community to try to see even those lonely nights and those lonely years of their single adult life as mm-hmm. a gift to them. Yes. Because yes. I think of so many people who marry like their college sweetheart. I mean, uh-huh. that sounds so romantic. But, but, but it's not. <laughs> it, it rarely, I'm just kidding. But it rarely. <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, sometimes it works. It does. Yeah, right, and, right, and, right. and you know, God love them. But so often, like you were yeah. saying, what ends up happening is two people with what is a, a reasonable amount of emotional maturity at 22, which for most of us isn't a whole lot. We're doing That's the best right. we can at 22, but to to forge that lifelong partnership with that level of emotional maturity so often. It's such a huge leap. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and, and it, I think it's easy when people are feeling that they've been single for so long and they see everyone else in it in their mind, everyone else has this perfect relationship and they didn't have to go through these lonely seasons. And I think, oh goodness, mm-hmm. <laughs> these lonely seasons are such a gift because what we do is as we work on ourselves, do the work that we've been speaking about today, we level up so that naturally, organically, without even any effort, we are attracted to and attract to us other people who are also emotionally healthy. Right. And so we that work is never wasted. Those those moments where you were lonely and you're going, oh, mm-hmm. I wish I had this person. But you know what? I didn't. So I had to make my own happy. That's I had right. to take care yeah. of my own emotional needs. None of that is wasted. No. I remember even at my wedding, I, I still, and I think I may have told you this a long time ago, but someone came up to me and they they said, finally, <laughs> and I and I remember kind of looking like finally what, and I said oh I got my doctor yeah and I did it on purpose I was like oh yeah I, 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 I think it was my postdoc I said yeah I finished my postdoc and like no 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 getting married I'm like oh and I kind of gave this look of like uh, uh you know because if people feel like that it's something that they're behind with right that they will tend to make poor choices because they want to avoid that discomfort of feeling like something's wrong with them rather than like you said, those nights that they're by themselves looking at that as just a nice pause, you know, a nice break or just time for yourself to figure out who you are. And, and at the same time, you're absolutely allowed to be lonely. Of course you can be lonely. But it's not a lonely that keeps you stuck. It's a lonely that kind of propels you forward. Yeah. And I think getting back to boundaries specifically, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it's easy to have boundaries when you have these life milestones that have fallen into place. So Mm -hmm. you say, hey, mom, I'm sorry, we can't be home for Christmas because we have to go to my husband's house for Christmas. Well, that's a nice, easy way to establish a boundary. And usually because, again, it's a very socially sanctioned, marriage is socially sanctioned, it's the norm. Mostly people respect that. I mean, you still have some cases where they don't. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, depending on the severity of the enmeshment in the family, but it's a stronger move to make those boundaries and establish them when you're alone when you're single. And again, that is emotional growth and development that's it's going to pay off in spades. In so many other realms, like we've talked about, it's going to pay off with your family. It's going to pay off with your future romantic relationships. It's going to pay off with your work relationships, your ability to approach your boss. All those things, as you were saying, those commonalities, Mm -hmm. those common behavior patterns, you can identify in one realm and then you go, oh, wait, I have the same dynamics going on over here. So when we cultivate the strength in one realm and we establish a boundary in one realm, we watch that that also becomes, we can generalize that strength that we were able to exhibit here, it can generalize to other contexts. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Then that's the goal. You started in the one area that's the easiest and you kind of then expand it outwards once you get more confidence. Like anything else, you kind of have to practice. So I like to tell people to practice on the people that don't make them as anxious. 
I love that. That's just such a great brass tacks, very useful strategy and technique and approach. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. So what other types of concerns do you have when you think about the topic of boundaries? Anything from your clients or anything that you believe is something that we're not quite getting as a community. And of course, you and I are on Instagram and we've got mm-hmm. other folks out there and we're trying to share. You know, one yeah. of the reasons I, I moved from being a professor to this realm was, you know, I wrote my book, of course, but then also I thought I'd be teaching this stuff in my family systems class, for example. I was teaching my second professorship. I was teaching in the grad school and I was teaching this stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, my my future clinicians in front of me need to know this stuff, but yes. so does everyone else. That's right, <laughs> like, that's right. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, again, is that, you know, I'll get people that'll say, I tried to set a boundary, but they got angry at me. Or I tried to set a boundary, um, but they made me feel so bad. And I cried and, you know, and, and again, it goes back to this boundary has absolutely nothing to do with the other person. You have, you know, almost pretend like they're not there because it's this, this boundary again is for the person to maintain control over what they're doing, what they're saying and how they're saying it and walking away feeling neutral and empowered. And so, you know, it's kind of like when you're waiting for an apology for somebody, you need to kind of learn to move past or move along with the idea that you may not get an apology and to put the fact that you may not move on unless you get an apology that puts it so your life and, and your emotions and your forward motion in, in someone else's control. Right. Which logically, when we break it down, logically doesn't make sense, obviously, but emotionally it can be very, very tricky. So it's the same thing for boundaries. Whether or not you set a boundary has nothing to do with the other person's response or or their predicted response or what they say to you. And it's it's important to keep that in mind. Because I will, I'll get I'll get questions all the time well, what do I do if they get angry at me? Well, then they get angry at you. And at the same time, you set the boundary. So I, I tell people a lot of times not to use the word, but mm. put the mm-hmm. word and in so that it doesn't negate the first part. So I tried to set a boundary, but I cried. I tried to set a boundary and I cried. So it doesn't negate that first part for them. And that makes them feel a little bit more in control too. Yeah, that's so important. And I think it's something that, I think we have to recognize that, and I'm sure this is something that comes out up with your patients is, I mean, yeah, no one wants to go and have this big confrontation and it feels like, oh, especially people pleasers mm-hmm. like us, but, mm-hmm. it, but what's the alternative? Because the relationship, staying stuck. right. Staying yeah. stuck in a mm-hmm. relationship that's not satisfying, that's mm-hmm. emotionally immature, that is 
essentially letting the person you're in a relationship with be a really bad version of themselves with you. That's right. That's right. And and the other thing too is the people that don't like controversy, which tend to be the people pleasers and tend to be the people that tend you know feel more guilt. The idea that setting a boundary will result in a conflict again brings the other person into the mix when it has nothing to do with the other person. So I have to kind of work because that's a very big fear of people. So I don't, I don't want to set a boundary. I don't want to make, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to ruffle feathers. Um, still has that idea that someone else is responsible for how you walk away from this. And they're just not. So powerful. It really is an empowered way of being, of living, of interacting. And I, I'm just so excited to be able to share this with my community because Mm -hmm. as I was speaking to so much of the stuff that we've learned along our professional development has been great for our profession, but also for our personal life. And it's something that I think if we could all avail ourselves a little bit more for this kind of information, I think all Mm -hmm. of us could level up (laughs) in our functioning. Yes. Absolutely. And and know that it's going to be difficult. It's not easy. And that that's also okay. Because like you said, you know, change and growth is is not, it's not easy. Even if it's better. (laughs) And it is so much better. I mean, I think about if I had never set those boundaries in my 20s, you know, what kind of relationship would I have with my family now? It would be have to, it would be, this is how it's always been and the expectations. And I would feel that there wasn't any true appreciation for me because when we don't establish those boundaries, there would be the sense of not having genuine intimacy in genuine relationships because I'm always feeling put upon or that these assumptions of who I'm going to be. But when you give the gift of yourself, of your true authentic self to the people around you, it truly is a gift because then they can choose. They can go, okay, I know who Jamie is. I know where Jamie Mm -hmm. starts, where she stops. And I can choose to be in relationship with her and not from guilt, not from need-based. I choose. And that's That's a really beautiful gift to give everyone around you. And the relief that you have to know that somebody is connecting with you unconditionally. Yes. That that is super important too. Because most... I'm going to say most, but a lot of people don't get that. I think because you're right. I, I when I say get it, I mean receive it. Because yes, as you said, we're so we're so nervous to have conflict, ruffle feathers, not make everyone happy. That you deprive yourself of the experience to have somebody connect with you unconditionally. That's so beautifully put. (laughs) Thank you so much, (laughs) Dr. Zuckerman. I appreciate you joining us today and sharing all this. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Let everyone know where to find you and get some more of your wisdom and uh, all this goodness. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. This was great. I I could talk about this all day long. (laughs) (laughs) So my website is Dr. D-R-J-A-I-M-E-Z-U-C-K-E-R-M-A-N.com. And my Instagram is dr.z underscore psychologist. All right. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. The love and life hack for this week is boundaries are loving. They're difficult to establish, but they're actually a gift to not only yourself, but to everyone around you. As always, thank you so much for joining us this week. I know this conversation will help you level up in all realms of love and life. 
If you have 30 seconds, I would be so grateful if you could head over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating if you would, and a couple sentences for a review that helps others find love and life and join our community. Speaking of which, if you're not on my mailing list, be sure you head over to my website and subscribe so that you will be the first to know about all things love and life, including the support groups, including the book club, and live events as soon as we're able to connect IRL again. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril, and until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.